that scene, if you're a child of the 80s like me, that was the one back when I was, that came out when I was like, what, 27? No, I was 11 years old, just bald like a baby. Who didn't when you were watching that? I mean, I haven't cried so much in a science fiction film since, I don't think. Um, Spock dying in The Wrath of Khan. Spoiler alert, yes, you've had 40 years. One of the great cinematic moments in history, I think, uh, and of course played out again in reverse in the modern reboot Star Trek Into Darkness, when it's Kirk on the other side of the glass there, heroically saving his friends. Also well done, that was, that was well done. But a classic example of the hero that we love to celebrate, a hero, especially in the movies. The movies, uh, there's so many great movie heroes. That person who is willing to die for the team, who's willing to die for the, you know, the good guys, the, you know, in the old westerns, the sheriff who stands up to the gang or the, the gunslinger in town for, you know, on, on behalf of the town and whoever is that person who's willing to rescue everybody from either the bad people or the bad thing, the disaster, the one that stays behind to hit the button so everybody else can get through the gate. You know, the, I, I remember when, uh, another movie from the 80s, what was it, Grey Lady Down? I don't know if anybody remember that. I remember watching that on TV. It was this submarine movie. And I was a little kid and, and just this uh, submariner who, who stayed behind, hit the button as the waters were rising so everybody could be saved. Oh, it just struck me so. And we call these guys heroes, right? Heroes are beautiful. They're, they're someone who is willing to die for this great and wonderful cause. And there's so many movies we could point to, you know, over the, over the years. From 40 years ago, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Star Wars. Or, you know, in more recent 10, 20 years, uh, you have Gandalf and Lord of the Rings. And uh, King Leonidas from uh, 300, Bruce Willis and Armageddon. Iron Man, Endgame, even the Bible talks about this sort of heroic love. You know, no greater love has any man than to die, to give his life for his friends. And so there's something just innate in all of us that just we see the, we admire the hero, we celebrate the hero, we love movies about the hero. But as much as we love a hero who's willing to die so other good people can live, when we get to the Gospels, the gospel, scripture talks about a kind of love that goes even way beyond this. It talks about a God who is not only willing to die for the good guys, he's willing to die for the bad people, the bad guys. He's willing to die for his enemies. And this kind of love is so radical, it doesn't even hardly make sense to us when you really start to think about it. It'd be like Spock dying for the Klingons or something like that, right? Iron Man uh, dying to save Thanos. You know, that's not what, how, Obi-Wan dying to save Vader, that, that doesn't really compute. It's, we're talking about a kind of love that says, that finally says, I, 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 you know, I value even those who are working against us, and I want to die for them as well. There's a reason why that's not a very common theme in movies today, because dying for the bad guys in a story doesn't really make you a hero, it kind of makes you a weirdo, right? Dying for, or, or it might even make you a villain, right? Going and dying for the bad guys. You're like a traitor, a traitor. We don't have, we just don't have a category for that. But that's exactly the story we're told in the Bible. That's the kind of story we as Christians tell in our life. God through Jesus teaches us that his heart is so radically loving that he loves everyone, including his enemies. It's why Jesus can call us to love our enemies, 
And when we're willing to live out that enemy love, even in the face of scorn uh, from those in our culture that we would consider on our team, and you will face that. You will face scorn. You will face out-and-out rage if you exercise enemy love because it's like a betrayal of your team, right? But when we do that, we're expressing the kind of love that we've received. For God has loved us even when we were his enemies. That's what scripture tells us. So we're looking at a passage today. Uh, We're going to look at a passage that works through this in uh, Romans chapter 5 today. And we're starting a brand new series that'll take us uh, through the month of January called Before and After. We're discovering the difference that Jesus makes. We're going to spend a few weeks comparing bits of the Old Testament and the New Testament to help us appreciate and celebrate just how much of a difference Jesus makes. How he changes everything. Jesus truly changes everything for us. Jesus really does make a difference. Do you believe that? I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're here and you're, you're, you're just, you're um, seeking, you're, you're exploring this whole Jesus idea, this is a great message for you to hear because you'll get to really understand this is what this Jesus thing's all about. And if you're here and you're already committed, you're like, yeah, I'm on team Jesus, then this is something definitely we have to understand because this is the story. This is the story that we tell, the story that we live out. The world around us may look dark sometimes and circumstances may look really dire sometimes, but I got two words for you, but God, right? But God. And, and we're going to zero in on four key passages over the next four weeks this month that reflect this but God hope that Jesus gives us, this before and after difference that Jesus makes, even within the Bible itself, we're going to see that Jesus makes a difference, okay? So we're in Romans chapter 5. Just a quick little bit of background. Romans chapter 5 is a fascinating chapter. Uh, The first 11 verses, it's fascinating. I'll tell you this. We're going to work through some of this passage. We're just going to read a few verses today. And two things are going to happen, okay? One, it raises all kinds of sort of very heady philosophical stuff, which you'll have a chance to, to wrestle with in your home life groups, which start next week. Yay! Home life starts next week, not this week, next week. At the same time, there's an important element to all this that's more than just philosophical. Uh, there, there's practical application to us because that's really what it's about. It makes this way more relevant to us than just kind of an academic discussion. So yeah, we're going to raise some big uh, mind-stretching questions for us to ponder. But remember, we, we always want to remember that the Bible is, a, is, is not just, it's not a textbook of philosophy just for us to think about and ponder and uh, as fun as that is. It is a window into a lifestyle uh, that we're invited to actually live out daily in the kingdom. Amen? So, in the first 11 verses of, of this passage, Romans 5, uh, the Apostle Paul is talking about So he's talking about what salvation looks like in the Christian life. And he talks about a couple of really important theological uh, concepts, justification and reconciliation. We're not going to go much into that today. Um, Except to say this, justification is is really a legal term and, and essentially means that you have been declared not guilty by the judge justified. Uh, just, you remember it because it just, I always remember it when I was a kid, a teacher told us justified means just as if I'd never sinned. Just as if I'd never sinned. I'd be declared not guilty. And reconciliation is another concept Paul talks about here. Reconciliation simply is the repair 
of a fractured relationship. It's the repair of a relationship. Two people have had something come between them. It's broken them apart. But now they've been reunited. And God says that we are now reunited in relationship with him. uh, Justified and reconciled. Okay. At the center of this passage are a few verses we're going to look at today. And at the very center of this, this beautiful, intimate love that God has is, remember, it's not just a heroic love that says, I'll die for my friends. This is a love that says, I will die for my enemies. At the center of this is something that happens, and Jesus comes along, and it's like the fulcrum that changes everything. It tips the whole balance to something totally different. And we are grateful for this enemy love of God, because there was a time when you and I were enemies of God, right? Uh, We were living for ourselves, both you, you and me individually, and also just as a human race, we were enemies of God. And so within the context of this whole discussion by Paul, we have these words in, in verse 5. He starts out saying this, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. What a beautiful, what a beautiful idea right there that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is that active presence of God that's always with us. Jesus left us the Holy Spirit. He's always with us the whole, through the Holy Spirit. And he is actually pouring love, pouring love, pouring love into our hearts, reminding us of how loved you are, that you're accepted by God, you're embraced, you're forgiven, you're loved. God's Spirit is pouring that into your hearts, even now, every day. It's pouring that into our hearts. And, you know, you can allow yourself to to embrace that, to be more in tune with that voice. Uh, But, you know, we all have the ability to tune that voice out, too. And some of us, I I have to admit I'm one of them, uh, can easily find excuses to dismiss that voice. We can sort of reason it away. Uh, We can say, oh, that's just sort of wishful thinking. You know, I'm just sort of making that up. So Paul is so brilliant here. Paul goes on to talk in this passage. Not only is there this subjective, internal uh, awareness of his love, but there's an outside, an external, objective evidence that God offers us of his love. Not just the spirit inside that's pouring love into us, but we have external evidence of his love in the person of Jesus. That's the external evidence. In the person of Jesus, having come in flesh and blood, in history, actually in a real time and place, on this planet, in the middle of the galaxy, he came. He he was born vulnerable like a baby to our dirty little world, and lived and died and forgave us and rose, rose from the dead and demonstrated that external evidence for us so that we can latch on and say, okay, I'm hearing this, I'm sensing it, I'm feeling it, I'm seeing it. I'm experiencing this God of love who's coming at me from all these directions, internal and external. So we sense God. So we're going to look at this evidence of Jesus and see how radical God's love is. And it goes beyond the love of a hero, which is even more amazing. Verse 6, he says this, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the, and who's it say? The godly, the righteous, the good people, the responsible people, the admirable people. No, no, no. The ungodly, the unrighteous, however you want to call it. He dies for the bad guys in the story. 
He says in verse 7, just what we've been talking about, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. We get those heroes every once in a while. They exist, right? They even exist today. We have heroes that exist. Our country celebrates them. Um, we tell their stories. We build them statues. We have holidays named after these heroes. But how many statues have you come across in a public square in America that were built for someone who gave their life or one of America's enemies? That doesn't really work in modern life, right? Is there, is there any holidays named after somebody who, who died for the group of people who oppressed them, who, who hated them? Uh, that would be an awkward monument for a group of people to gather around. But actually, we have a monument just like that, the cross, right? And when you think about it, that is really weird. But we have just such a monument. Our hero died for the bad guys. He died for the enemies. The Christianity is a nation. It's a kingdom built around a founder who died for the enemies. And, and sure, in our world, somebody, someone rises to the occasion sometimes and is willing to die for the cause of a good, good guy. But, it says in verse 8, there's that but, but God. But, he says, how many of you know, when all seems lost, everything's headed down a dead-end road with no hope? Jesus steps in and says, but God, here it is. Here's the before and after. This is the biggest, biggest but in the Bible. Can I say that? Shows the, this is the stark contrast right here between the way things were and the way, what happens when Jesus comes on the scene and changes everything. But God demonstrates. Demonstrates. That's an ongoing present tense verb. It, it keeps going. It, it didn't just happen once in a past historical event, although it did, but it continues happening. The cross is this ongoing demonstration that we continue to look to. And it says it's the demonstration of God's own love. God's own love. It's not just the love of the Son, Jesus. This isn't the story of an angry, wrathful God and a, and a loving Son who comes in the way to like de deflect his thunderbolts from hitting us. You know, no, God, don't. You know, we're like, yay, Jesus, thanks for saving us from God. No, 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 he saves us from our sins. It says this is the God's own love. God is demonstrating his own love for all of us. That's you, me, everyone. How? In this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. While we were the bad guys. And in fact, a little later on in verse 10, it, it, we're literally called the enemies. We were the enemies. So this is going beyond the hero. This is love for the enemy. And in doing this, what does he do? He converts his enemies into his friends. This is love that's off the charts. There's nothing like it. We don't have a category within typical human thinking for this. But this is who God is. Now, before we um, get to the practical stuff of, of how we receive this love and how we live this love out, I want to take a quick side trail uh, for, for a minute to introduce and address an issue 
that this sort of understanding of God's love brings up. And this is really good that you're here today. You know, like if you, do you remember from college, you go to the first day of class and the professor like lays out the syllabus and like the way, the way you actually pass the class. And you only get that if you go to the first day of class. So you're getting it. You're getting how are you going to pass the class this year? So way to go. High marks for you for being here today on January 2nd. Because um, this is so important. This is so pivotal. What we're going to talk about here just for a few minutes here. There is a contrast, and we all know it. There's a contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? It's just different. I mean, if you, even if you just read it, like if you weren't even like a religious person, you just read them, like two, two different books or something like that, they're like very different. Everything is different. The, the New Testament is a new covenant. Really, the word means covenant. And it is like New Year's Day spiritually. The New Testament really is. You notice today is... January 2nd, 2000 what? 22. This is not the 13th month of 21, right? It was a new year. Something different. Something happened yesterday. Something happened. We started a brand new year. It's not a continuation of the old. It's a, whoop, it's a new thing. And we're living in this moment right now. You know, we, we had a New Year's Eve and we had a New Year's Day. I've got the party hat to prove it, right? We had a New Year's. And and yesterday was 85 degrees, today is 29. I don't know. It's a new thing, right? Just boom. Who can understand these things? Um, and so Jesus, at the same time, Jesus is this pivot point. Something very different happens. And this doorway, he's the doorway into a new year, a new covenant, a new understanding of God's love as a love for enemies. But it does bring up a sticky situation, doesn't it? Uh, when we open our Bibles and we read what came before Jesus. And a lot of Bible is what came before Jesus, right? Because, I mean, when you think about it, doesn't the, Bible, the God of the Old Testament uh, sometimes see more uh, of a God who doesn't die for his enemies, but sort of like slays his enemies? Right? Can we, can we can admit that? Uh, I think there seems to be a lot of slaying going on. If I recall, a lot of slashing, a lot of slaughtering. Um, and that's not lost on our critics as well. So it's no use like trying to ignore it. Or, no, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Right? The, the people who don't even serve God know very well, your God seems to do a lot of slashing and slaying in the Old Testament here. So it's not hard to see even how so many Christians, so many of us, could arrive at exactly the wrong definition of how we treat the world, if you're getting your definition of being like God from the Old Testament, right? Right? And that's happened throughout the centuries. We've had some pretty ugly chapters in the church, haven't we? Christians who get their definition of being like God, just plucking it out of the Old Testament. Sometimes reading the Old Testament will have us scratching our heads, um, asking if Jesus is who God really is, then if that's who Jesus is, if God who's always been, how do we deal with the God of the Old Testament? Are they like two different gods? Are we like polytheists now? Uh, do we question the revelation? It's problematic, especially for those of us, and I'm one of them, who do insist that all of Scripture is inspired by God. 
We believe all of Scripture is inspired. Uh, and so there are different ways that different Christians have tried to answer that. And listen, I've, we, we're, this isn't the subject of our series, but we fully embrace the fact that this is a challenge. This is a challenge for us. Some people have tried, and some Christian groups have tried to reconcile this by just throwing up their hands and saying, well, you know, God, he's into killing. Uh, he's into killing, but he's also willing to die for people when the mood strikes him. <laughs> Who can know the mind of God, right? It would be, and that actually, to be honest, that would be easier because that's, okay, that's clean, right? There it is. God does what he does. Uh, he does what he wants because that's who he is. Sometimes he likes to slay. Sometimes he dies for his enemies. He's a bit of both. And we might not like that God as much. We might not trust that God with our lives as much. Might be a little scary to be around that God. But we could say it, sure, it makes things simple, right? That's, that's God. Well, that would be fine. That'd be satisfying. It'd be depressing for me, but that'd be satisfying if it weren't that we're told in the New Testament that Jesus is such a central revelation of who God is. See, and, and here today, this is why you guys get the gold star for being here first day of class. Uh, because this is, this is, just so you know, this is kind of who we are. This is who we are as a church. Um, so much, we're told so many places, Colossians, Hebrews, all say that Jesus is the exact image or representation of God's heart. Hmm. That he reveals God to us in some kind of uncompromised way, a perfect way, never before seen. John 1 tells us that he is the word of God made flesh. He's the sum total of all that God wants to say to us. This is, Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. John 1.18 says that, that God is revealing his heart and that out of, out of the bosom of God comes Christ, right? That's the language it uses. And he reveals who God is to us and who God has always been. So there's something about Jesus says that this is God's heart. This is God. This is God's heart. No compromise. And so we don't just read our Bible and then add on the Jesus revelation to the rest of Scripture. What we do is start with Jesus. We start from Jesus and we work out from there. I think of it as looking through the lens of Jesus. I look at, I look at everything in the Bible through the lens of of Jesus. So I don't look at Jesus through the lens of the Old Testament and then say, okay, well, that's, here's the perfect revelation of God. And then Jesus, that must have been God in a good mood. He was in a good mood that day. No, I look through the lens of Jesus. And then I have to ask the other questions. What does that mean? If that is the perfect revelation we've ever been given of God, uh, the word for it in theological terms is called Christocentric. So you might say, hear, hear that sometimes, uh, you know, the Christocentric approach to the Bible. Um, and you can tell people, if someone asks you, you know, what, what's, your, what's your pastor like? Oh, Scott, he's very Christocentric. I proudly am Christocentric. Christ-centered. Christ-centered, that's what it means. Um, it's, it's Christocentric, not just Christo added on. Um, we start with Jesus and we see his truth. Then we see, we can look forward and backwards in the Bible. We can see his truth uh, echoing backwards through signs and shadows of the Old Testament. Uh, we do see uh, that his truth and his love breaking through uh, very often through the, through the fog at times of the Old Testament. Um, 
Sometimes it has to break through the ignorance of people and just the way their culture does stuff. But sometimes you do see that self-giving love of Jesus breaking through and it's beautiful. Uh, Sometimes it's obscured. Sometimes it's kind of hard to see Jesus breaking through in some of those places in the Old Testament. But we see Jesus in fuller clarity, obviously, in the New Testament. So as we go forward in time from Jesus, that's our fulcrum, we go forward in time, then we see Jesus in full, brilliant, blazing clarity, his love, his self-giving love. And so as Christocentric believers, we choose to say, no, it seems to us that Scripture is saying Jesus shows us most clearly who God really is, what God is really like. Jesus shows us most clearly the true heart of the Father and the way that the Father has always had, the the heart that God has always had, the Father. Even when being honest about that, it makes things um, a little more complicated. Now look, we, we all believe this because otherwise the Bible could have stopped with the Old Testament. Why bring Jesus on the scene if we already have a perfect revelation of God? If the Israelites already have a perfect understanding and revelation of God, what need is there for Jesus? What need is there for the Holy Spirit to now carry us forward for the 2,000 years that followed the writing of, of our scriptures, right? We, we need, we need Jesus. We need Jesus to show us who God is. And like I said, it's not the purpose of this series to really fully explore the answers to this question. But let me just briefly uh, mention a thought or two of where I've landed on this too, because uh, I've really wrestled with this a lot. But hopefully, in, in case it really helps you, uh, I think this is going to help you in two ways this year. Number one, I think being Christocentric and understanding this about Jesus, number one, it will make you a more Christ-like Christian. It's kind of a shame we have to actually say that. That would seem to be a, a redundant thing to say, a Christ-like Christian, because Christian is supposed to mean Christ-like. Um, but we actually want to be more Christ-like, right? Our reason for being is to help each other be more like Jesus. So understanding this will help you be a more Christ-like, Christ-like person, right? Number two, um, I think understanding this too can really help you as you go in this year and you start your new uh, uh, discipline, self-disciplines of Bible study. As you study your Bible and you're opening your Bible in the mornings or in the evenings or whenever it is, and you're, olding, you're opening it, whether it's in the Old or the New Testament, when you start to see things through this Christocentric lens, um, I think it'll make the scriptures just come alive to you in a whole fresh new way. I think it really will. I love what my wife, Melissa, has said in the past, and it's just so brilliant. It just sums it up so beautifully. She says, every verse of the Bible reveals God or reveals our need for God. That is so good. I've just like ran with that. That is so good. Every verse, every verse, it's all we're told every scripture is God-breathed, it's all inspired, and some of it reveals God, and some of it whew, reveals our desperate need for God. Am I right? Okay. So, here, here's where I've landed. Uh, first of all, if Jesus is who God has always been, if he reveals the heart of the Father, you know what I'm saying? If Jesus shows us the DNA of the divine Father, we can, we can boldly declare a couple of things here. Number one, we can say that God has always been about self-sacrifice. He has always loved self-sacrificially. God's always been about self-sacrifice. Jesus shows us in living color the God who gives himself in self-sacrificial love for his friends 
and his enemies. And his enemies. By being, like I said, he was born into our little world. He lives this life mostly of humility and uh, poverty while giving generously, healing others. He spends his whole life just giving and healing and then being crucified for us while we were the ones who were guilty. The last words he speaks on the cross is forgiving the pagan Romans who were crucifying him, right? That is the ultimate act of enemy love right there and forgiving all of us who were also indirectly responsible for that. Okay, but now if we accept that, then how do we see this self-sacrificial love in the Old Testament? How do we see that in there? Well, then we, would, we could say this. Before Jesus, God accommodated our stubborn hearts. And that's the way he put it to the Pharisees one time. They had a question about divorce or something like that. And he's like, you guys realize God accommodated your stubborn hearts. He allowed you to do some stuff that was not his perfect will. But he allowed you to do this out of love. He accommodates our stubborn hearts in order to reveal his commitment to working with us in relationship. God is committed for whatever reason. Our Father God is committed to working with human beings in relationship and partnership. That's the way he has chosen to deal with us in the world. He didn't have to, right? He is fully capable of just making everybody do what they want like little robots. But what this means is that God never, ever, ever does a like mental lobotomy on people. He just doesn't seem to do that. He is, he is committed to this self-giving love. Never at any point in history does he take people uh, in their own culture, their own worldview, even their own scientific understanding, even their own assumptions of what is uh, right and wrong. He never just forcefully lobotomizes them to force them into his total perfect divine knowledge right? It would have made things simple. He could have, but he doesn't do it that way. God in his love, he commits himself to working in the context of relationship. He steers people in a trajectory, and he guides, and he reveals. He points us towards a trajectory, and I like that word, because rather than just saying, okay, this is the way you, uh, you understand everything. Now just everything is this way. That completely would be at odds with, with culture. It would be very disruptive. He, he points us in a trajectory, but he never lobotomizes people. And what that means is that there are many places throughout human history where instead of forcing some brand new uh, cultural ethic um, or, or, you know, equal rights for, for women and for minorities rather than you know, we don't see that in the Old Testament, but he puts us on a trajectory towards it. He doesn't implant in, you know, fifth uh, century BC Middle Eastern desert tribes a scientific understanding of the universe. Hey, everything's 14 billion years old. <clears throat> what? Right? He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that on folks. That would be a completely anachronistic and jarring thing to them in their historical context. God accommodates elements of their understanding uh, for the long-term purpose of guiding them toward a better way. And we see this pattern throughout the Old Testament, even into the New Testament. Um, he see, we see this trajectory toward pointing us towards his will and his way, what Jesus calls the kingdom. That's the kingdom. He's pointing us towards the kingdom. He's pointing us towards the kingdom. Why does God do this? Why would God choose that way 
instead of just sort of spiritually and mentally lobotomizing everybody. Because God has made us in his image. He's made us in his likeness. And then he honors his image in us as free will choice makers. He honors that and he commits himself to the process of partnership with his image bearers to bring about, bring about the future. That's what God has always done. He's always been this way. Right. So that means that God in his love is willing to work with fallen, stubborn hearted image bearers of God so that he can meet us where we're at. He meets us where we're at. So in the New Testament, we see a lot of uh, examples of this really clearly. Uh, for instance, uh, the subject of kings. As some of you know the story uh, in kings in the old... Uh, Israel, as it was founded, was founded to not have kings. God was the leader of Israel, right? It was like President God. That's, all, that's what they had. And they followed the will of God. And he would use the prophets to proclaim to the people uh, what he wanted to do. He, he just led Israel through the guidance of the prophets. But one day, there was this prophet named Samuel who came to God and he said, like, God, the people are yelling at me and saying that they want a king like all their neighbors. Everybody else has a king and they want a king now. And God says, that's Israel rejecting me because I'm their king. And God even warns them, kings will lead you to heartbreak. They won't, you won't like having a king. You're rejecting me. God couldn't hate the idea of monarchy, kingship more, right? It, it's, he says it's a personal rejection of him. I mean, that's, we have a word for that. It's called sin, right? And what does he do next? He says, well, Samuel, let me help you choose the right king. Let me help you choose the right one. And he starts working with kings at that point. He starts working with them throughout the history of Israel, helping the prophets choose the right king, helping the prophets, leading the prophets to go rebuke the king when he goes wrong. Now, if you just parachuted into the middle of the story of David or something like that, you'd be like, wow, God's really into kings. He loves kings, right? Oh, he's already let us know in the beginning of the story. He says, that breaks my heart, but I will meet them where they're at. I will meet them where they're at. God never says, no, 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 no. You know what? Better, better plan altogether. We're going to have democracy. You guys are going to like get together and vote. And then you'll have the, right? They would have been like, Demo, what? What? Never heard of that. Doesn't, doesn't make any sense. God doesn't do anything that doesn't make sense to them, right? So he, this is, there's this gradual thing that he does. I'm not going to, he says, I'm not going to turn my back on him. I'm actually going to help bring about the best version of what's really a non-ideal situation, kings. Uh, we see this principle of accommodation with the uh, temple. The temple, we, you might have heard about, you know, the great and glorious temple that used to stand in Israel. One time King David came to God and he said, uh, God, I'm going to build you a big house, big temple, because all the other gods have houses. They have temples and um, kings have their own palaces. And God, you're like a king, right? So, so I'm going to build you, I'm going to build you one too. You, I got a palace. You need a palace. I'm going to build you a big palace, big temple. And God says, I already have a tabernacle, which was a tent. He says, I, I have a tent uh, that's good enough for me. It's portable. It's great. Uh, I'm, I, I just want the tent, not a temple. And David says, no, I'm going to build you a temple. You need a temple. And God says, no, I really just want a tent, more of an outdoorsy deity. Uh, I'm fine with the tent. Uh, don't need the temple. So David's son, Solomon, becomes king. Uh, he becomes king. And what does he do? He builds God a temple. But what does God do? He shows up in all of his presence, and he blesses it, and he meets them at the temple. 
So is God all about temples? No. He hates the idea of temples, right? Elsewhere in scripture it says, I'm not a God who lives in your houses of stone and wood and all this kind of stuff. But we're stuck on a temple. We love temples, right? And so in the New Testament we discover, in fact, that we are the temple he always wanted. Was Israel ready for that? No. They weren't ready. Same holds through for sacrifice. We've talked about sacrifice before in past series. God was never the originator uh, of the idea of sacrifice. People love to sacrifice. We love to sacrifice. And uh, so God meets us there. He stewards the, what God does is so brilliant. He stewards the whole concept of sacrifice to point the way to Jesus, who would become the ultimate sacrifice, to point to the, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And he points, you know, he says, not only is your body the temple, you're the temple, but he points us to uh, the one who will become the final sacrifice and show us God's love. So we're on the scene. We're like, we need to do a lot of sacrifices to God to show that we're worthy. And God's like, all I ever wanted was to sacrifice myself for you. And then we look at even the judgment of enemies in the Old Testament. We see in the Old Testament this nation who wants kings, who wants borders and temples. And, and uh, by the way, they can't seem to stop worshiping the idols of their neighbors. Um, these same neighbors. God told Abraham that I'm going to raise this nation and you're going to be a blessing to all of your neighbors. The whole world's going to be better off with you in it. You're going to be a blessing to your neighbors. You're going to reveal who I am, who, who I really am. And we see this same God willing to accommodate the brutal heart of these children that he loves by allowing them to enact judgment on the nations around them. And we discover through Jesus, we discover his heart was always more to die for his enemies than to kill them. So in fact, when we, when we really get a clear understanding of the self-sacrificial love of God, now we start to realize, shockingly, how God's love is revealed even in the most brutal parts of the Old Testament. And there are some brutal parts, stuff I would never read to my kids at bedtime. Because what surely broke his heart did not stop him from giving up. It didn't, it didn't make him give up on his commitment to work with humanity through relationship through patience. He didn't give up on working, on accommodating us when necessary until the time when he would fully reveal himself through Jesus Christ. Now, I understand this raises all kinds of questions. And if you have questions, kind of going, wait a minute, that's good. That means you're listening. Thank goodness. I understand. And we could do a whole nother series on this concept of accommodation we find in the Bible. Um, things like we mentioned with slavery, polygamy, is allowed at one point. Um, gender hierarchy. You know, I wish God had just come out and said, slavery's wrong. Slavery's terrible. It's evil. It's wicked. It's stupid. Never do it again. Right? But in the Old Testament, what does he do? He kind of says, okay, well, at least treat them humanely. Treat your slaves humanely. We get to the New Testament, what he says. He says, treat your slave as a brother or a sister. Right? So we're getting closer to that trajectory which makes the believers of the first century go, well, that's going to make it really awkward to hold my, keep a slave, right? And God's like, yeah, well, right? But we see this. We see this trajectory until eventually through the Holy Spirit, obviously today, 
We know what an incredible wickedness that is. I know this raises a lot of questions, but at the very least, I want us to begin to see that we don't get to know God just by picking or plucking a verse or here, um, here or there, or a story out of the Old Testament and saying, there, that's God's true will in his whole heart. We get to know God by starting with Jesus at the center. And then when we do go back and we read some of those parts of the Old Testament, much of it I realize now, when we read those parts, I read through tears. Why? Because I believe God lived it out through tears. Because this was a painful accommodation, surely for him, a painful accommodation of human brutality to still accomplish divine things, godly things. I might have told you before, once, one time I was reading just in my private time out of Joshua 10, um, I was just reading about these people being slain, these people being slaughtered, everybody's getting slain and slaughtered, and all in the name of God. And um, Joshua has a lot of slaying. And in my little notebook, I wrote these words, I hate this page of the Bible. And then I just sat there and waited for the lightning to strike me. But I just felt like weeping because I'm in love with this Jesus. I'm in love with who he is, the example he gives me that I can't yet live up to, right? And I'm reading this stuff done in the name of God, and it makes me want to weep. It makes me want to cry. It was a lot of confusion. I'm reading through this stuff. I had a lot of questions. And over the years, um, I, I didn't get all my answers, but I got enough that I came back later and I wrote something underneath that, underneath, I hate this page of the Bible. I wrote in parentheses, you know, I think God does too. Now that's not to say that God wasn't there. I believe he was. Or that the passage wasn't inspired, wasn't written through the inspiration of his spirit. I believe he was there. He lived it out. I believe he lived it out. And I believe it probably was no less painful than to watch your own child perform some heinous act, what that would do to you. I believe he lived it out. Every moment, every drop of blood that was spilled of his human creatures that he loved, he created them. He loved them. He was there. He felt it. But because I believe that God is the same God revealed in Christ, um, I now believe that it was unimaginably painful. And only, only his divine commitment not to step in and lobotomize these stupid little creatures, right? Like I would, or, right, only his commitment not to step in, but to honor that, that divine free will choice-making spirit within them, to work with them through relationship, even over the long, long term, to work with them. Only that love allowed him to, to suffer through that. So the God that we see in Scripture, the God we see in Scripture continually chooses love even over getting his own way. He chooses love over getting his own way. That should be no surprise to us. We're told in the Gospels that he wills that none should perish, but that everyone should have eternal life. God values love. He is love. And he values that free will 
ability to make that choice. And he, he sets us on the path. He sets us to, on the trajectory. And he says, that's where we're headed. You see that point way at the finish line? It's called the kingdom of God. It's the will and the way of God manifesting fully in our lives. That is what we at Generations Church are on the path. We're headed for that. That's where we're pointing the kingdom. That's what we talk about the kingdom here. We want to live out the kingdom, the will and the way of God. We're not here to live out Israel. We're not going to like bring back Israel, right? Mm-mm. Not unless something there points us in that trajectory right there, the self-giving love of God. So I want to, I want to share a concluding thought. I know all of that's kind of deep and troubling and philosophical and everything, but, but there's a practical reason I'm talking about this today. I want to challenge us today before we pray. Can you think of relationships in your life where you need to love people the way that you've been loved by God? Are there relationships in your life you need to love people the way you've been loved by God, where you're saying, thank you, thank you God for forgiving me, but mm, you don't want to forgive. Thank you God for gracing me, but you just can't get on board with this other person. You can't tolerate them. It could be all kinds of relationships. Um, I mean, parents, there's a challenge for some of you, right? Children, that's a challenge. Spouses, former spouses, ouch, right? Extended family, that weird Uncle Louie, he just shows up and he won't go away. What about friends, former friends, boyfriends, girlfriends, former boyfriends, girlfriends, bullies, you know, in person or online, those kind of people. What about Christians? Maybe you looked up to one time uh, for inspiration, but they, they have come to disappoint you in their unchristlike behavior, their unchristlike attitudes and ideas. And, the, and the, the, the temptation is to just strike them, to cut them off, to hate. What does loving them look like? What about Muslims? What about atheists? What about those anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers or those pro-vaxxers and pro-maskers, all those people on the other side of the political, cultural aisle? What about those people, whoever those people are to you? You're called to love your enemies. I'm called to love our enemies, right? I don't say that lightly. I know it's just, it sounds like a Hallmark card, but that's not an easy thing. If you don't have the river of the Holy Spirit flowing through you daily, and you'll have to ask him for his help again every day, right? Until it just becomes so second nature and so natural. You're, you're operating in the supernatural just so naturally, right? To that enemy love. You're called to love your neighbor. You're called to love your friend. And you're called to love others as yourself, right? You're called to love your enemies. I mean, after that, who's left not to love? That's, that's pretty much everybody. What does it look like to love those people? We could say it this way. There are lots of heroes in the world. And thank God for them. But there's only one Savior. There's only one Savior. Because a hero rescues the good guys. The Savior rescues everyone. We love everyone because we serve a Savior who loves everyone, who came to rescue everyone. 
And that is the one in whose image we are created. So we really don't have a choice. If you want to be a Christian, you don't have to do that. Maybe you just are something else. But to really be a Christian, to be a Christ-like person, we're called to love everyone, everybody. Now, just a couple of quick reminders before we go about this nature of love. Biblically speaking, uh, first of all, love is a choice. It's a choice that you make to treat someone as priceless. It's a decision. Uh, it's not conditional to any emotion you feel. You don't have to feel all the feels, the warm fuzzies uh, to love someone. Sometimes we hold back on love, I think, because uh, we're like, you know, I'm just not feeling it right now. And I don't want to be a hypocrite. So I'll just keep my distance until God gives me the feelings. Um, and really, that's just a wonderful psychological trick uh, we play on ourselves to opt out of loving people. And, and I've done it too. Um, I was thinking, how do you think Jesus felt dying on the cross? How do you think he felt for us? Um, do you think it gave him like butterflies in the tum-tum thinking, mm, wait till you see their faces? I doubt it. I doubt it. But he chose to love even when it hurt. And second, love never means passively tolerating abuse or injustice, right? If you're in an abusive relationship, love doesn't mean staying in that relationship. Uh, so you don't say, okay, well, I'll just let whoever get away with it. Uh, because what love always asks is, is really, how can I help this person become the best version of themselves? How can I help this person become their best, their best selves, the best version of themselves? I'm going to actively uh, do whatever it takes to move into the situation and do what it takes to help you live up to the priceless value that God has given you, right? They may not receive it, that's fine, but that is the gift that I am committed to giving. And it may mean holding people accountable. It may mean challenging people in an uncomfortable way. It may mean getting out of a toxic relationship, right? Not letting them abuse you. Um, but it may just mean laying down your rights in an argument. Laying down your rights to be right. And, and, and remember, as I say this, love always uh, looks at the plank in our own eye before we go around and make sure everybody's little specks in their eyes are all good. So we want to we wanna take care of the, our own issues. So what does this mean for you to love your enemy this week? To let go and just say, I value you so much. I want nothing to come between us. They may accept it. They may not. Uh, but you're choosing to, to dive into this new year, fully embracing the goal of becoming more like Jesus who reveals to us the heart of God. Will you, will you bow your heads with me this morning and let's pray and uh, ask God to help us live this out. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the example of Jesus. I thank you for how clear the evidence is you love us to death. I thank you, Lord God, for the Holy Spirit just internally reminding us all now that beautiful gracious love. And I pray this week that as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, as we listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit inside us, that we would become more like Jesus. That we would commit ourselves to helping each other at generations become more like Jesus in 2022, which is what we as disciples, we long to be. May we love those around us with the self-sacrificial love of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Amen, amen. Um, if you're one of our prayer partners, if you would come down front at this time, we have uh, guys who would love to pray with you if there's anything going on in your life. Uh, you might have a physical need or, or something going on, uh, jobs or financially or whatever it is. Uh, let us pray for you. If you want to send us your prayer request, we would love to receive that too. There's a lot of different ways to send us that prayer request. And uh, we have a whole team of people on our prayer chain who would just like to go into action and stand in faith with you about whatever it is. If you want to say yes to Jesus for the first time today and say, I want to know more about this this journey, this self-sacrificial love of Jesus. I need that in my life. Just come forward and let these guys pray with you. They would love to lead you on that next step. Amen. Would you stand this morning for a benediction? Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you this new year. May you make his face to shine upon you and be so merciful to you. And may his love and grace and peace flow like a river in your life. Amen. Let's go be like Jesus this week. Bye-bye.